0: Welcome to Lithium Ion Rocks, Episode 21, After the White Gold Rush, Alivent in Alberta, E3 Lithium. I'm also thinking it could be called Model 3, or Model E3 Lithium, from Tesla. After that blowout quarter we just saw, uh, Alberta is not so far from the Gigafactory, So potentially hydroxide produced from the Alberta lithium project could feed Tesla's gigafactory, so long as there's some cathode nearby. After the gold rush, of course, is uh, from Canada's Neil Young, uh, someone we've talked about in the context of rocking in the free world Namaska, which we'll say a few words about shortly as well. We'll also pay homage to the Eagles, who announced a tour in which they're going to play the entire Hotel California soundtrack. New Kid in Town E3 will be at Hotel California at the Benchmark Minerals, uh, Cathodes, and Anodes Conference November 11th to the 13th. I'm very much looking forward to this uh, upcoming Benchmark Minerals Conference. Uh, I've been asked to uh, host the lithium panel or introduce uh, the speakers at uh, Lithium Americas and Pilbara and Rio Tinto, uh, as well as General Lithium. Rodney will be there as well, uh, as we both make our way uh, to the Deutsche Bank conference uh, later that week on on Friday in New York. But first, I'm uh, heading to London for LME week uh, this week, uh, the 28th to the 31st, Um, likely to do a couple of podcasts from there, as uh, well as check out the European Lithium scene,
1: The recent results from uh, Tesla and uh, to some extent the news announcement from VW that they are looking at profitability once again points to the importance of how battery costs are key and central to the EV theme. With the removal of an internal combustion engine and the transmission system etc batteries really are at the heart of it and keeping the cost down is what's going to determine what comes up in the future. ...for the individual companies. We've seen BMW now make a shift talking about sourcing for itself. I think that's key. I've said it for a long time. If you uh, hand over that responsibility, if you delegate the responsibility for battery sourcing... ...then I think that you will suffer in the long run and it's not a sustainable strategy. The key, of course, is when EVs represented 1-2% to of auto sales for companies... Wasn't that important, but as we start to move towards parity between ICE and EV, that's going to change, and so does the strategy. Then, looking at um, conversations and market debate about price, and in particular battery grade and battery quality, my take on it is China currently represents in the upper 20s percentage wise in terms of passenger sales globally. Uh, however, it sells more than it, you know, twice that as a percentage for EVs. Now as the EU CO2 emission standards come in, and again it's important for people to note, it's 95 grams per kilometer now in 2020-2021, but that shifts again and lowers to about 80.75 in 2025 and down to 57 grams Per, per kilometer in 2030, and just translated, if you look at a lot of the ratings of the plug-in electric hybrids, they're 40. The average fleet in Europe is, uh, I think, 118 grams per kilometer. So you realise, you know, the adjustment that needs to be made. So crudely speaking, if we exclude um, super credits and weight adjustments, etc., across the fleet, and just simply look at it as like-for-like uh, like cars, what you have is if cars are coming in around the average fleet level, then four cars comes in at roughly 475 grams per kilometer as a total for the four cars, meaning that the fifth car, in order to meet the 95 grams per kilo, per, per kilometer, would need to be zero. So that means roughly, if you accept that standardized maths, one in every five cars needs to be an EV, and that's where Europe is going to in the short term. So the way we see it with sales coming out of Tesla, Ford, etc., launching new models, Rivian, and you look at Europe, and you look at uh, what will happen in the rest of the world as prices fall, the way I see it is that the shift in EV sales as a percentage will adjust subject to clearly infrastructure, subsidies, etc., but it will shift away from China representing 65% to lowering it to more what it is in terms of uh, auto sales in general. And what does that mean? Well, that means that um, as a percentage of global EV sales, the 475 independent producers in China will lower their percentage and the major auto companies globally the top 10 to 15 will increase as a percentage and with that so will their demand for uh raw battery materials that meet the standards required in order to honor the warranties that they will sell those cars with so in my mind the price of uh of battery grade chemicals ex china and you know in um South Korea, Japan, Europe, US, etc. I don't believe that they will fall. They already have shown resilience. I think if anything they will stay flat or move up and I am in support of the new normal 12,000 plus as an argument for longer term pricing particularly given the stringent spec standards that will come with that demand and the unlikely uh, Ability of existing producers to meet that. What we've also seen is Tangshi recently results not only uh, a, a poor financials but also a cost, a major cost overrun actually at Quinna. I think seven hundred and seventy-eight million for the twenty-four thousand uh, ton train. Um, I think that's Aussie dollars, so comes in at five hundred and something. Let's call it five fifty meaning, again, well over $20,000 a ton, and also slow to ramp. So I think whilst uh, in an ordinary industry, inverted commas, a commodity, you would see that, you know, a shift in in demand would be much smaller than lithium, which is expected to come in around 20%. You can expect the incumbents to do brownfield expansions and get there, but if you look at who is capable of doing brownfield expansions at today's current prices. In my mind, that really is limited to just SQM and the Atacama and Albemol and Tangxi using Greenbush's feed in China, not elsewhere. And even then, there are some limitations to that growth uh, and you've even seen Albemol, I think there was some increase in tolling. So what is going to... Get uh, lithium supply up to what's needed in the coming years. In the spec that is needed, is going to need to be incentive pricing, and um, uh, given uh, you know the state of the Aussie spodumene concentrate producers, you know it's one thing to claim that uh, your cash costs are one thing, but if you look at all mined versus all processed, and you look at all you look at sorry concentrate sold versus concentrate produced and it's possible to be operating at cash costs well below spot but still needing you know funding facilities and needing cash raises so at six hundred dollars a ton they don't seem to be making headway in my opinion the balance sheets are deteriorating you know substantially we've seen galaxy also cut back so what is the price at which Uh, The Chinese chemical converters can look to get a stable feed out of Australia uh, in a a company that's going to stick around. Well, it doesn't appear to my mind to be $600. And as further evidence of that, you've seen A40 go into care and maintenance. So that's a rough roundup. Uh, I really look forward to seeing what uh, Tesla has to uh, announce when it does its battery day early next year. Um, you know there was earlier talk of um, of uh, one terawatt hour or possibly even more as their stated goal by 2030 I just can't see it a terawatt of tier 1 battery even at a point eight lithium intensity would be 800,000 tons from one operator I think Elon Musk and Tesla is is, uh, is uh, aiming in the right direction in that you need to have a a standardized operating platform. I understand the Model Y uses about 75% of the Model 3 components. But the other key and central element is batteries. Quality and, and uh, scalability for keeping the price down. So it will be interesting to see what he announces. I think uh, that if they are going to make a major push. Then at some point in time Tesla will need to move upstream in the battery raw material space if they are going to secure anything like what they need for a reasonable volume. I think even moving, you know, Tesla's capacity to 100 gigawatt hours by 2023 is going to take some doing based on my models and removing existing demand from ceramics, glass, etc., consumer electronics and from competitors. I kind of, I think my numbers literally, uh, you know, Are stretched at at that number at 100 gigawatt hours for tesla so we shall see uh about that as it as it goes along but the profitability is definitely shaking the market and um uh, it will be interesting to see how the other auto manufacturers respond now that uh the prospect of tesla folding is very low or lower and uh that VW is is uh, stepping up as well and uh, and a real threat in the mass market price segment of the uh, auto sector.
0: Thank you, Rodney, for that uh, lithium equity intelligence. So as promised, uh, you brought up there that uh, Tangxi had a huge cost overrun and you were quoting $20,000 a ton. That's just for the conversion plant. Uh, if you factor in mining you know then that would be much higher but uh they are sourcing from uh green bushes but um namaska has got beaten up for years this thing has been around uh, 10 years they did a full financing last year 1.1 billion canadian but the cost overrun which was only equivalent to about 280 million u.s dollars uh is about in line with what uh, proven operator tangshi uh, you know, has has put together, but uh, the a difference between Tangxi and Namaska is cost of capital. As a uh, a Chinese company that managed to get four billion dollars to buy a stake in SQM at sixty five dollars, uh, uh, something that uh, no one really was talking about uh, until maybe after the fact, uh, except for me, for much of last year. But uh, how do they do that? And finance. Um, you know, Quinana and a cost over on in comparison, Namaska was forced to take 11 and a half percent, you know, ultra secured debt. Um, and they, they raised 60% of their overall, uh, ca- expected CapEx, which is quite high leverage for the risky business that, that is lithium. But the reason they raised so much debt and also a royalty stream with Orion is that the equity markets just weren't there. Um, I saw uh, Guy Barassa in uh, March at, at PDAC, and uh, he highlighted that, uh, you know, for this country, they raised only like 15% or 20%. A very small percentage was raised in Canada. And you would think, um, you know, why shouldn't there be lithium hydroxide production from a reasonably good quality mine at Wabuchi? Um, hydroelectric power, um, you know, clean you know, new technology so uh why not test it and it's been a, a great testament that softbank we, we all lament where is venture capital coming into this industry so namaska scored big with softbank and also where are traditional kind of mining private equity here's palinghurst uh, brian gilbertson uh you know chairman um you know bhp executive gen you, you know a, a traditional mining guy having the foresight to to come and understand where are the rest of his peers? Where is Rio Tinto in size? Where's BHP even right? So it's it's a great sign that Pallinger's is in the mix, but uh, you know they have an outstanding debt issue. Um, that's the, the as far as I understand. You know the story wet Namaska. I have no uh, direct relationship with uh, Namaska, any financial or, or otherwise. Just uh, in the interest of disclosure, but I do see. It is one of the things I I talk a lot about, Uh, you know, mining from hard rock spodgmine um, has a a very long history in North Carolina and Quebec and, you know, North Carolina and Quebec, you know, proximity wise are, uh, you know, as close or closer, you know, than let's say the Pilbara is to Southwestern Australia where uh, the Australian lithium mines are. And with what Rodney was just talking about at, Tesla, um, you know, and the, and the EU increasingly, um, mines and chemical plants have to be built near where cathode battery and, and cars are going to be built. And they're clearly going to be built in size in North America and in Europe. So, uh, it, it makes sense. Hard rock to hydroxide, low cost. Why wouldn't, uh, you know, the Carolina to Quebec hydroxide hub, uh, as I'm calling it. Uh, evolve, you know, to feed southeastern uh, United States uh, plants like SK Innovations. Uh, SK Innovations announced $1.7 for a 10 gigawatt plant with uh, plans to grow that to uh, 50 gigawatt as part of a, an overarching uh, world plan uh, of growing to some 100,000 gigawatts. You know, an LG Chem is, I'm sure, going to come, and as part of the UAW GM agreement, Uh, they talked about in Lordstown. There's going to be some battery plant. Maybe that will be LG Chem there. So it's going to happen here, and uh, certainly, uh, you just heard from Rodney uh, how successful you know Tesla is being. So so as this becomes real, um, the the volume of lithium needed is going to increase enormously, and. I, I just don't see why there shouldn't be, uh, you know, in Albemarle and Livan's backyard with all the history. You know, we've talked a lot about the Piedmont Lithium Project, um, you know, and there's King's Mountain at Albemarle. Uh, and, you know, so Quebec should work, right? We, we'd like to see a success. North American Lithium is kind of out there as well um, in, in some administration process. But uh, it makes sense. The galaxy has James Bay. There's a number of deposits uh, in Quebec. Uh, together with what you know, the Tins-Bajmi built in North Carolina. Um, so I, I see, and would like to think there there should be um, this uh, base load supply of Tier One, you know, batteries. As Rodney was uh, discussing for, for all the Western OEMs, it's got to be you know Tier One, high quality. You know, you got the skills, you got the weather, you know, in North Carolina. And uh, so, as I see it, like I'm I'm rooting for. Palinghurst and Namaska. uh, I think, you know, it's with all of a uh, soft uh, woes with WeWork and Uber and, and, and the like, you know, they still have $15 billion left in fund one, you know, what, if they come into Namaska in my mind is a, um, is a nice to have, not a need to have the, the bigger question is Palinghurst going to pull the trigger. And I, I don't know, um, where they are but uh you know they've been very supportive on conference calls everything they've talked about is is in relation to capital structure it's very interesting i saw that this iq you know investment quebec and also the minister for economy and innovation um you know pierre fitzgivens uh this guy's a very accomplished guy i mean he started a business that was ultimately sold you know 2.3 billion dollars to nestle um in agribusiness and prior to that he was a uh, royalty you know in in Canadian you know financial circles you know in private equity as vice chairman of National Bank Financial so this is like a serious guy this is not some like kind of government you know uh bureaucrat traditionally and so so he uh there's also been a change at in Quebec uh, Guy uh, Leblanc um you know they also increased their funding from four billion, you know, to five billion. So, uh, like Quebec has a strategy um, in, in, in that I think is actually probably more credible than the strategies implemented in Chile and Western Australia, because um, you have the big American market. I, I think they're there and supportive, rooting for uh, Namaska because the world needs more lithium everyone's curtailing you, this is an advanced project right it's uh, a quarter built you know, or, you know so it, it can realistically bring in supply if they execute well and you know can't talk about the price i don't know if it's 25 cents or if they'll reset the deal to me that doesn't matter what matters is that this thing should go forward in my opinion and i i'm rooting for that to happen and sometimes i feel like uh, i'm actually the only one uh, because uh, m- most people uh, seem to be uh working against um and, and have
2: been for for many years today i'm announcing a new proposal clean cars for america it's designed to rapidly phase out gas powered vehicles and place them with clean vehicles the goal is that by 2040 all vehicles on the road should be clean and we plan to spur a transformation in american manufacturing how would the plan work first it would provide a large discount to buy an electric American-made electric vehicle when you trade in a gas-powered car. Lower-income Americans could get an even bigger discount on a new vehicle, or a discount to purchase a used electric vehicle. Second, the plan would make the necessary battery-charging infrastructure accessible to all Americans, regardless of where they live and work through a nationwide manufacturing program for electric vehicle infrastructure. And third, it would provide grants to retool existing manufacturing plants and build new ones that specialize in clean technologies. That was
0: my senator from New York, uh, Chuck Schumer, who is also the minority leader in the Senate. I've said for a long time that this industry is very much a bipartisan industry. What Elon Musk is doing uh, is advanced manufacturing. These are MAGA battery factories. I would hope there could be MAGA cathode factories. Chuck Schumer is talking there about a national plan to develop charging infrastructure. That sounds similar to kind of the Eisenhower Highway Bill, which built the U.S. interstate, interstate highway over many, many years. I don't know where this goes. Um, it, it's a very, I don't know if any legislation kind of gets passed before the election next year. Trump has been talking about, okay, the do-nothing Democrats, uh, you know, here's the USMCA. Well, maybe pass USMCA, get that win, you know, and then focus on this. Rio Tinto, with this tailings project out of their borates, uh, this may have attracted some attention to Ioneer. Because um, you know, part of their thesis, a very significant component, is that their boron mine will displace the borax uh, of Rio Tinto. But uh, I- I'm a- a very much uh, think that this move by Rio is uh, a bit overstated or significant uh, PR. You know, bold Batar, you know, this is not a bold plan uh, to uh, really enter the business. I've thought for a long time in Western Australia, your backyard the spodumene market should evolve into a oligopoly of its own, uh, possibly uh, maybe a duopoly. And if they really wanted to acquire uh, skills in lithium, uh, Albemarle is right there, much, much, much smaller company than Rio Tinto that could actually move Rio Tinto's needle. But I think a much more interesting news story that will be the talk of the Benchmark uh, Conference is uh, our next guest, Chris Dornbos and E3, and now we'll start the uh, core of the Alivent uh, in Alberta, E3 Lithium. Welcome to Lithium Ion Rocks. It's October 24th. I'm here with Rodney in London and Chris Dornbos, of uh, the CEO of E3 Metals, who recently signed a $5.5 million, up to $5.5 million joint development agreement with livent the fifth largest producer of lithium in the world and acknowledged technology leader. Uh, E3 publicly traded in Canada, ticker symbol ETMC. About $4.5 million Canadian has been spent through equity issuances and some government grant funding. And we are going to talk about the Alberta Lithium Project, which is a very large uh, some. 40 kilometers by 140 kilometers uh, wide reservoir, which has defined an inferred resource of 6.7 million tons LCE. It is a low PPM brine uh, at present, 75 PPM, uh, but through ion exchange, uh, direct lithium extraction technology that E3 has proven uh, they plan to upgrade this to some 5 to 6000 ppm and uh, Livent has been brought in to partner uh, based on on the the promising uh, testing that they've done to to now bring this to pilot plant and scale but uh, I will let Rodney do most of the questioning to talk about how we are going to get from here to an objective of 20000 tons Initial uh, lithium hydroxide production is the current plan sometime by 2023.
3: Chris, great to have you on the show. Um, looking at how quickly you were managed to delineate uh, 6.7 million tons LCU's as a resource, were there uh, some savings taking over an oil brand with
4: the existing drill results? We've been able to do that. Uh, so effectively, because uh, there's over four thousand drill holes into this reservoir in our area. Um, these holes have been there; have been uh, drilled for oil and gas exploration. Um, the key with the reservoir that we hold is a very small percentage of the reservoir itself uh, has oil in it. The remainder of the reservoir is filled with water, and that water has the lithium uh, dissolved into it. A good attesting to uh, how efficient it is for us to to develop this is the fact that we've only raised about $4.5 million to date. Um, and that's because we can sample the the existing oil and gas production, um, obtain samples, brine samples, and, and test them. And we anticipate that uh, the use of this infrastructure, both for the development of the project as well as commercialization, um, should continue uh, into the future, and we should be able to continue to see cost savings from it.
3: One of the uh, things that we always see on... Um on projects around the world for lithium is the question of consistency of brown grades and impurity across the resource. Can
4: you tell us a little bit about that? So far, the sampling to date has shown that the uh, the reservoir is fairly consistent in terms of its uh, constituents. Um, it's, it's been around for a very long time. The, the water is probably 400 million years old, so it's had a long time to um, homogenize in the reservoir. However, there's evidence that uh, some human interferences caused a bit of uh, dilution and um, and you know we believe that the majority of the reservoir and this is based on historic sampling that we've seen as well as um, you know methods that uh, oil and gas companies have deployed to enhance uh, oil recovery by injecting you know non-lithium water into the reservoir um, that uh, the majority of the reservoir is actually a bit higher grade potentially up to 140 milligrams per liter. so um, this is something we'll look to prove in 2020. Um, but uh, other than that, the reservoir does seem and appear to be pretty consistent across the entire area. Okay, excellent.
3: If, if we look at your flow sheet, the front end of, of pumping the brine to surface and the back end of, of processing highly concentrated brine is, is fairly well known. The key then is, is really your iron exchange and that process. So how does your iron exchange process impact the lower
4: grades found in the reservoir? The, the process that we've developed um, allows us to be able to take our, you know, average lithium brine, which is tested right now at about 80 milligrams per liter, um, and increase that concentration to over 5,000. And the way that we're able to do that is using this proprietary ion exchange process that we've developed. Ion exchange is, is a well-known process. Uh, if you have a water softener in your house, it's effectively an ion exchange system. What we've developed is a chemical that goes into an ion exchange system that is extremely selective for lithium. And it's got such a high selectivity for lithium over most other elements. uh, It allows us in one step to not just um, concentrate the brine to that 5,000 milligrams per liter, but we also don't attract uh, very many impurities. So we end up removing through this process 99% of or greater than 99% of any of the impurities um, and especially the important ones, the calcium, magnesium, sodium, those are the ones that really impact the process. What we've developed really uh, attacks sort of the two main issues that most brine producers have, which is grade and impurities, and so we're able to tackle them both at one step.
3: Ultimately, your objective is to produce a, a battery-grade lithium hydroxide. Is the clear water resource to be utilized first, and is the ion exchange process such that a consistent low impurity product is achievable regardless of
4: where within the resource you'll pump? Yeah, we're definitely focusing our efforts right now on the on the Clearwater area. Um, so the the ion exchange process that we have, the direct extraction system, uh, has a pretty large buffering capacity um, in the sense that, uh, you know, to date, the results that we have from uh, running the system and putting it through its paces uh, in the lab have shown that no matter what brine we put through, and, and again, it doesn't change very much uh, inherently. But regardless of those variations, um, what comes out of the back end is very consistent. I um, mean, it's just inherent to the fact that it doesn't uh, it doesn't have any selectivity for those elements, so we're not they don't end up in the final the final concentrate that we produce. So we get a very clean, very consistent product at the back end of our system. That's going to be key. If one of the things
3: we we see in the lithium market is the the key always being being able to produce a consistent a product for the end buyer, so that will be hugely helpful for uh, for E three. The risks with uh, oilfield brands you know, often is reservoir pressure and maintaining that. Uh, given. The depths of one and a half to two k's you'll be sourcing and pumping from. I presume you're going to have some uh, reservoir management uh,
4: processes to manage that. Similar to any brine production project um, in lithium or or in any other um, project that uh, generates minerals from a brine source, it is definitely a reservoir management exercise. Um, you know, we have the advantage that we have control. On where we'll be placing our wells, um, and how the system will be designed, based on our the, the details of the of the reservoir model that we have, outlining how fluids move in this. The majority of uh, that will be managed by um, placing taking out the lithium water um, and placing it back into the reservoir in a systematic. Uh, way that we we never end up back producing that lithium-void water. And keep in mind that this project, is, as Howard also mentioned, is, is massive. It's 600 square kilometers of reservoir. So we've got a lot of room to move around, a lot of room to play with in this reservoir to manage it and to make sure that we're always producing um, that lithium brine. For the infrastructure
3: surrounding your project uh, is excellent, particularly the availability of gas, if I remember correctly. You've got a main pipeline running within about two k's of the project can you elaborate on on what else is easily accessible for
4: you this project's in the heart of the alberta oil patch it's a very mature industry in alberta we've been producing oil and gas and and also brine uh, for over 70 years in the province and the project's only about 20 kilometers away from the city of red deer service industry based community um, for the oil and gas industry so there's services and professionals they're available to develop the infrastructure required. The regulatory regime is very mature in terms of uh, permitting, but also in terms of just the understanding of how projects like this get developed and that social license that comes along with that. If you were to drive through the project area, you'd be passing wellheads and the grid road every mile. And uh, just leading on from that, then
3: one would assume, you know, permitting is key for any project, uh, but looking at where it's located. What's what's historically been approved in the area, and, and what more would
4: E3 need to do? Permitting process looks very similar to the an oil and gas. At the end of the day, we'll have our own permits for the production wells and for our facility where we'll be producing the lithium. Those permits will come from either amending existing permits, and this really means that we'll be taking on existing infrastructure or taking on sites that had infrastructure previously that have been decommissioned but still have a permit. We can also be apply for our own permits. But either way, the path to permitting is very well established in the province. There's a very um, well-documented process um, under the Alberta Energy Regulator, and we're working very closely with them to look at this from a lithium perspective. We believe that the current government that's in place today is going to be very supportive of lithium production. We're very similar to oil and gas development. Alberta is in pretty big need of diversification in the economy given the downturn in oil and gas world, and that this province is really uh, an oil and gas uh, centric uh, economy.
3: we are in Alberta can get pretty cold. Does there have any impact
4: on the low temperatures? Uh, would they have any impact on the project? Not really. We manage that in Alberta every day. The process to get the brine out of the ground into a facility happens year round in Alberta today for oil and gas development. The brine also comes out pretty hot. It's 60 to 80 degrees Celsius. With the amount of distance that we have to move it, the temperatures will remain quite warm. We'll only lose a couple of degrees. And this is a pretty positive impact because it actually enhances the, the direct lithium extraction process that we put it through. And it allows us to use heat that heat in exchangers so we can use it for simple things like heating the buildings. Um, we can also use it to enhance the process uh, downstream by, by using some heat exchange. So um, that brine temperature is also pretty important for us if we can touch on the livent
3: deal to the extent that you can it looks to be a, a fantastic deal for e3 livent is putting up to five and a half million dollars in and it's not a loan it's a contribution that only goes somewhere if they make the full five and a half million dollar payment it might not be an enormous amount in Lavent's world but it certainly is their first foray outside of their existing projects so would it be fair to say they did an extensive due diligence?
4: We've been talking to Livent, for, uh, Livent, formerly FMC, for just over a year now. They have visited the site. They've come to the lab. We've been developing a potential project together with them for the past year. And I think really, you know, the Livent deal is a bit of a paradigm shift for E3. It's not just because it's Livent, although that is a big part of it. It's also because it demonstrates how far the company has come we're one of the few companies out there that has in the lithium space that has both a technology and a resource um, in the junior space live and being attracted to us and, and end up uh, completing this agreement to test to uh, how far technology development has come that the company has been working on. um, And, and also test to, you know, the work that the staff, my staff has, has uh, put towards, um, you know, validating this enterprise, the resource and the technology, um, something that looks, uh, you know, has a lot of strength to get towards a commercial product.
3: Reading through the uh, public, uh, publicly available announcements, I mean, the first key step for you is in proving the commercialization of, of production of, a, of, a, of the
4: proprietary solvent that you've developed. There's a development team that's formed of technical people from both LiveEnt and E3 their first goal is really to develop a process and methodology to uh, make this sorbent that we've developed uh, commercially. And then following that, and to some extent uh, in
3: tandem, you will be looking to uh, develop and construct uh, an iron exchange pilot plant. You're not, not doing a demonstration plant from start to finish. This is really, as we mentioned earlier, the, um, the front end and the back end technologies are, are all pretty well known. This is really about proving the iron exchange uh, co-
4: commerciality. That's exactly right. I mean, the end of the first stage will have a commercial sorbent, basically the ability for us to manufacture it as much as we needed when we need it. The next stage is is really just demonstrating that that works. In a process uh, deployed in alberta it's it's actually i think a, a bit of a smaller milestone than the first one i think the first one's very significant putting the chemical into a pilot plant and running that in alberta demonstrates the commerciality of it in real space in real time the brine is already coming to surface so we're not proving that you know, liven has a significant amount of expertise um, as well as many other you know epc firms as well in the design and construction of lithium production plants. So that expertise is there and that knowledge is there. So if we can demonstrate that what we've developed can work commercially, then the risk level of this project has been uh, reduced significantly to the point where we're going to be looking at how are we going to build a commercial uh, uh, facility. Extending beyond that, uh, what are the sort of key milestones
3: and the rough timelines that, uh, that potential
4: investors should be looking out for? I think 2020 is going to be a very busy year for E3. We've obviously got the work going on um, in collaboration with LiveEnt, the commercialization of the sorbent, and then also the construction and operation of the pilot plant. On the E3 side, outside of that development uh, plan, you know the company's going to do some reservoir testing, um, there's, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's uh, some anticipation we might find some higher grade um, elsewhere in the reservoir, and so we're going to go look to prove that to the market. We'll be looking to upgrade our resources to measured and indicated, um, which is a pretty pivotal milestone as well for the resource development. And I think all of that's going to be 2020, and then the combination of the completion of the pilot plant and um, and the design of the well network and and a, lifting lithium production facility will culminate in, in a pre-feasibility study that will be into 2021.
3: And then, as Howard mentioned earlier, I guess a, a definitive feasibility a year later than that, and then the targets is 20,000 tons per year a plant built and, and in production by
4: 2023 as a target. It's a pretty good timeline for us, I think, in terms of the development profile. Developing the well network and the production of brine is uh, is not a complicated uh, task for Alberta uh, and for the the uh, contractors that require are all readily available. So that piece is um, is fairly straightforward and doesn't won't take a significant amount of time. So really, it's it's just the construction of the um, process facility that is the time leading step and and so you know I think twenty thousand tons by twenty twenty three is a pretty good goal, and, and for us, you know, that is just the start of what this, uh, this reservoir can produce.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that I've sort of noticed is uh, whilst at the moment, although you've only used 34% of your land to generate the 6.7 million ton LCE resource, that puts you at sixth, is um, if you look at what potentially you can scale on how much of the aquifer is accessible you know, there isn't really, you know, you can scale this to substantially bigger than
4: than the projects that have a larger resource. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of, um, uh, I guess, credence for us to be able to expand the resource itself, and you know, we'll look to do that as the project evolves. Um, but I think more importantly is is the ability for us to scale even within in a production sense in, in terms of producing lithium. Um, within the resources that we've already defined. Um, the reservoir can certainly handle the brine production um, to scale. And that's the real limiting factor in any resource project is, do you have the resource to support it? And uh, and can you, in, in a resource world, mine it? And for us, because we're producing brine, it's, it's as simple as putting wells into the ground to get that brine. Um, it can scale very quickly. Um, and so, you know, 20,000 tons, for on a production sense is really the start. I think we can grow that in the Clearwater area alone up to probably somewhere in the realm of 50,000 tons as we develop. And then we can sort of sit back and look at the market and, you know, determine, you know, looking at the demand profile and and how other supplies come on if it's worth it for us, but we can then go to our other two areas and build identical 50,000 ton process facilities in each of those. So this can really grow and it can grow at market need and market demand um and it looks like it'll be a good time for us to be bringing that production online given sort of the price prediction, so I think we'll be in good shape. Also, I guess a positive that uh, listeners should
3: recognize you control 100% of the project and, uh you know, if LiVent does make the full payment and completes the JDP, you know, your joint development program and converts, uh that's still... Only up to a maximum of 19.9%. And that's at the company level. You will always, for now, own 100% at the
4: project level. Yeah, that's exactly right. We, you know, three and a half years ago, um, E3 was out uh, acquiring this ground directly from the, grant, the government. So it's, it was staked. We own it 100%. The benefit to that is we'll be able to scale it um, and we'll be able to retain all that value. If Livent um, don't
3: participate in the, uh, or if they withdraw from the uh, joint development program or don't do the conversion and make the full 5.5 million payment, can they utilize this technology on anything
4: other than their own project at Hombro Motor or Leduc? Livent and E3 are collaborating together to uh, reach this milestone of commercializing the sorbent. And that milestone uh, is uh, associated with a $5.5 million U.S. Um, investment in that project. So for Ent, uh to continue um, beyond that, they have to have spent the $5.5 million or provided E3 the difference. If they don't, if it doesn't cost as much and completed the, the development of this and, and the construction and operation of this pilot plant. At that point in time, they have the opportunity to convert into their 19.9%. If they choose not to, at any point along the road there, um, they don't have any availability to use the technology in any way. If they walk away, any money... Uh, put towards the project is also forfeited the reason it's structured like that is because i think both e3 and live end but i'll speak for e3 i think we have a lot of confidence in the fact that this is going to be successful assuming that they it is and they convert 19.9 percent they have the uh, opportunity to use the uh, ip which is this ion exchange process um, at their project at hombre uh, in argentina and that is it they don't have rights to use it anywhere else Look, I, I've
0: been following Livent very carefully when they were at FMC and and Paul Graves and all of his pronouncements uh, before the IPO. Um, after the IPO, we've been strongly um, supportive of them as, as the technology leader. But I also, I, I know because FMC was kind of ignoring and not allocating a lot of capital to their lithium business, you know, ahead of the spinoff that they have articulated, I listened to a, a fireside chat, you know, with, with Credit Suisse, where they were, you know, talking about for them to be relevant, um, you know, over time, they're going to need something beyond uh, Hombre Muerto. And uh, they, they have articulated a preference for Brian, you know, over or over Hard Rock. They don't rule out Hard Rock. But just to, having watched and observed, um, this is in line with the strategy that they articulated Uh, using their technology uh, expertise, uh, looking for something that is scalable, you know, geographically diverse, right? So um, I view this as it's a bit of an R&D project. It's not a a huge risk. I think it's a a low-risk, high-reward opportunity, you know, from Liven's perspective. Obviously, from your perspective, it's, uh, it's very, very, very meaningful. You know, it's a bit high, you know, as an investment in in E3, uh, which is only, you know, a, a 10 million Canadian market cap, right? Obviously, any company of this type, you know, from here to four years from now, um, you know, it, it's high risk, it's clearly, you know, it's a speculative prospective investment. But but relative to, you know, other, uh, there are some comparables out there like standard lithium, which has a market cap uh, of about $50 million or, or five times your current market cap. Um, it is a, a brine development project in, in Arkansas that has hit you know certain milestones and um, you know it, it's looking promising and, and and they have a have a partner there but but there is a difference they don't own the resource you own the resource um, and they are uh, actually proving the concept um, not not their partner you know in, in this case it's it's the other way around the, the, the leading lithium technology company is essentially proving um the concept of and, and you said that the sorbent and the pilot plant you know that should be uh, about 18 months um and in parallel you know in about 18 months time you expect to have a, a pre-feasibility study uh, for investors who are listening to this uh, over the next 12 to 18 months is that is that fair
4: considering we just started the development team and you know that project's really just getting going i think that's a fair estimate at this point
0: Another TSX Venture technology company people may point to is uh, Nano One, which has an 80 million market cap and has gained traction as they've hit milestones over the past couple of years. In lithium-ion rocks, lithium-ion bull, and through our respective LinkedIn and Twitter posts, Rodney and I may share with our audience some rationale for a stock for which we have conviction to own or not to own. If you agree or disagree with and act on or against the rationale of anything said or written in this, or any other lithium-ion rocks or lithium-ion bull, that's your free choice. But to be clear, what you are listening to or reading is not investment advice and may not be unbiased. It should not be construed as an investment recommendation to buy or sell any security. Rodney and I are not registered investment advisors nor broker-dealers. Please visit libull.com for further disclaimers.